At Progressive, we know there's nothing like the feeling of riding a motorcycle with your crew on the open road. It's a primal, wild freedom. A feeling that would be impossible to recreate on the radio. Until now. Hit it, sound effects guy. Hmm, no. You know, we really lost our stride at the end there. Get 24-7 roadside assistance with Progressive, America's number one motorcycle insurer. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Roadside assistance subject to policy terms and limits and may require comprehensive coverage. This week on RVER, sponsored by Progressive Insurance. Hey, Chief, we got a damaged RV on its way to the OR. Well, that sounds like a job for the new head of RV surgery. <laughs> Wait, are you promoting me? Congrats, Martinez. Doctor, that RV's flatlining. Well, that sounds like a job for the new head of nursing. So you're just promoting everyone now? Yeah, kind of looks that way, doesn't it? When your RV really needs saving, Progressive has you covered. See if you could save with a leader in RV insurance. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Coverage subject to policy terms. One of the most important cities in the history of civilization was founded on Oak Ridge when the world-altering Manhattan Project made this area its district headquarters. Alan and Ray take us a little deeper into the science of Oak Ridge. And I know that you said that initially they wanted a location and they wanted to keep it at least out of the press. So did the locals immediately know what they were building? No, I didn't have have any idea. Not, Not only did... Did the locals in the surrounding area didn't have a clue what was going on in Oak Ridge. All they knew was people coming out of Oak Ridge had mud on their feet. <laughs> and that's about it. And and many of them obviously were not from here. They were foreigners, if you will. They scientists had come in from large universities and, and large cities coming into Oak Ridge. By the way, General Rose knew that he had to had to do something in this uh small rural area, he was bringing people that were accustomed to having really good educational facilities, that were accustomed to having cultural activities, music, those kinds of things. So he hired Alden Blankenship and told him, said, build the best school system in the nation, pay the teachers the same salaries they'd get if they were in New York City. And by October of 1943, they started three schools here, and then eventually there were, I think, about eight or nine, maybe even more built. Uh, Best school systems you could build were built right here in Oak Ridge. Oak Ridge continues to have one of the best school systems in the nation. I will Uh, say a lot of folks came from other places, but some folks from around here as well, including people just out of high school going and working the the famous Calutron girls. Right. right. The, The people who were moved out of this area, almost all of them came back to work here. I mean, it's best paying jobs in the, in the Southeast for sure. And they were, uh, for example, Tennessee Eastman was uh, chosen by General Groves to run the Y-12 plant. And uh, just because they managed large operations and they knew how to do it, they didn't have a a clue what they were doing scientifically, but the scientists knew that. You said how many people knew? Maybe a hundred of the chemists would have known they were working with uranium, a heavy material. And remember, that's never been done before. So they didn't know what they were going to do with it. They knew it was something for the war. The people that made the insulators, the electrical insulators for the calutrons, that they that you run high current through those magnets to make that magnetic field, very strong magnetic field. In fact, he talked mm-hmm. about the calutron girls. Since the Eastman hired young girls right out of high school, trained them to operate those calutrons. Gladys Owens was one of them. She was living up in Kentucky, 
And her best friend in high school sent her a letter and said, Gladys, you need to come to Oak Ridge and get a job. There's men down here. (laughs) There wasn't any young men up in Kentucky. They were in the military. But this was the special engineer detachment was here. So there were young male soldiers here. So she came down, got a job, worked uh, from January till August of 1945. Then in August, after the war ended, the population went down from 75,000 to about 30,000. And by the way, it stayed about that. Oak Ridge is about 30,000 now. <clears throat> but many of the people were laid off, had to leave. So Gladys left. She came back in 2004, saw her picture on the wall here at the American Museum of Science and Energy of those Calutron girls where they're sitting on stools. She said, that's me. <laughs> Steve Stowe, who was the director of the museum at the time, called me and said, Ray, I found you a Calutron girl. Now, that's where that term came from. They didn't call them Calutron girls back in the day. They called them cubicle operators. But we coined that term, Calutron girl, and now it's being used by everybody. (laughs) So I took her out to Y-12. I was the Y-12 historian before I retired. I worked at Y-12 for 47 years and uh, retired in 2017 and am continuing to uh, be the historian for the city, but I'm still tied to Y-12. But at any rate, I took her out there, set her up on a stool, made her picture. That right in the Calutrons, there's, they're still out there in two of the buildings at Y-12. That's a part of the Manhattan Project National Historical Park now. Okay, But I took her out there, took her picture, and she said, Ray, I never did know what I was doing when I was working <laughs> out here. Can you show me? I said, yeah, Gladys, I can show you. I opened up one of the doors of the cabinets of the Calutron cubicle, and I said, Gladys, when you were adjusting those knobs, and that's what they did eight hours a day, just adjust a knob to keep a meter on a certain point. They didn't know what they were doing. They were just keeping that meter on that point. I said, when you were adjusting that, you were changing the value of a rheostat down here. She reached over and tapped me on the arm. She said, right. I still don't know what I was doing. <laughs> but I know if I had any bobby pins in my hair, they just go and go stick to the wall somewhere. <laughs> Largest magnets in the world would literally pull bobby pins out of a woman's hair. So they didn't know. Almost none of them knew what they were doing. When they would be asked by people over in Knoxville, what are y'all making out there? And they'd say, oh, about 75 cents an hour. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what are you doing out there? Oh, no, we're just making horses' heads to go with those horses' rears that are up in Washington. I mean, just silly things like that. But they didn't know. Uh, Gladys said, if you talked about what you were doing here, you'd be gone the next day. Hometown History is brought to you by June's Journey. If you enjoy playing games on your phone, then I have something super exciting to share with you. June's Journey is a game that offers history and a really big mystery. If you never get tired of a good whodunit, then you'll love June's Journey. When you start playing, you'll jump right into the roaring 1920s. You're June Parker, this amateur detective who is set out investigating a series of mysteries. I'm loving the game, the storyline is right up my alley, and the theme of the 1920s is such a fascinating one. There's lots of hidden clues you have to find in order to progress in the game. Sometimes we just need a way to get our minds off the problems in our day-to-day life. June's Journey is my go-to for that. Ready to awaken your inner detective? Download June's Journey, free today on the Apple App Store or Google Play.
Hometown History is also brought to you by Novo. Small business owners, startups, freelancers, entrepreneurs, do you know the number one way to avoid unfair bank fees? Step one, close your account. Step two, open a new Novo free business banking account. Novo is the number one business banking app because it's built from the ground up to be powerfully simple and free business banking that Money Magazine called the best business checking account of 2021. With Novo, there are no minimum balances, no transaction limits, and no hidden fees. Sign up for free in under 10 minutes at banknovo.com hometown. Then, they'll mail you a Novo debit card, and you'll get free ATM use. Novo makes banking easy and secure. You can manage your account in Novo's customizable web, Android, and iOS apps. With built-in profit-first accounting and invoicing. Plus, you can tag each transaction and upload receipts. One of my favorite features of Novo is that it integrates with all of the business tools that I use for my business. These are services like Stripe, Shopify, QuickBooks, and more, all for free. Plus, Novo offers over $5,000 in perks and discounts just for signing up. Seriously, the user interface for signing up is super simple, and their online website is super easy to use. Get your free business banking account in just 10 minutes at banknovo.com hometown. Go to banknovo.com hometown to sign up for free right now and get a free copy of Novo's Small Business Starter Guide. Banknovo.com hometown. Now, they started a 43 club after, after the Manhattan Project was over. Several years later, they started a club of the people who were here in 1943, called it the 43 Club. At the second meeting, at the end of the meeting, this man held his hand up and said, I want to ask a question. They said, all right, what is it? He said, when I was at here during the Manhattan Project, I had to keep a stack of three by five blank cards in my pocket. And if I heard anybody talking about the project, I had to write down what I heard, who said it, and when it was said and where. And I had to put that in an envelope and send it to the Acme Finance Company. Now, if I didn't hear anything at the end of the week on Friday, I had to send them a blank card. He said, I wonder if anybody else had to do that. About half the people in the room held their hand up. So they were spying on one another to report if anybody was talking about the project. You had mentioned earlier how the, the people outside of Oak Ridge knew that the locals that were working here would have mud on their boots or on their shoes. Remember, this place was built in some 18 months, and there was a huge amount of construction going on here. They put down wooden planked walks rather than you think, well, you know, they, 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 the place was growing so rapidly. Roads were dirt roads. They, they were paved later, but not initially. So you had a lot of construction activity, building the city, building three sites, four facilities, all going on at once. So, yeah, it was mud. <laughs> Real I think, mud. Uh, Denise Kiernan, who's on our National Advisory Board, I wrote a great book called The Girls of Atomic City, and in that she talks a lot about encountering that mud when they first got here yeah. and uh, how they learned lessons of what to wear and what not to wear as they tried to make their way around Oak Ridge. Yeah. That's pretty cool. <laughs> so when Oak Ridge was built and they had all the people here, was there – 
like normal things that you would see in a city back then, maybe a movie theater or sure, absolutely. Each of the they didn't have a centralized location like a square. I mean, the way Oak Ridge is laid out, Outer Drive and West Outer Drive runs up on top of Black Oak Ridge. The Oak Ridge Turnpike runs down in the middle of East Fork Valley. Between those two main roads, up going up and down the ridge, there are avenues or streets, and they're all named for states, starting with Arkansas and going to Oklahoma, if you will, and it's alphabetical. Along each of those streets, if, you, if it's New York Avenue, all of the side streets off of New York Avenue would start with an N. So you can easily tell where you need to be in Oak Ridge by what's what the name of the street is. If it's an N, it's likely either on New York Avenue or Nebraska. So it's going to be on an N street. But there are no squares. There are no uh, blocks to circle. You either got to go to Outer Drive or to the Turnpike and go from one street to the next. So that's the way it's laid out. It, it's easy to find your way, but not easy to get there. <laughs> they had dances. They had sure. softball teams. They had dances had on the tennis courts. That's right, right. Had tennis courts here. So they had a, a uh, civic music association. Had a playhouse, theaters, and and one of the the main Jackson Square, which was called Town Sided, actually had two theaters: the Center Theater and the Ridge Theater. And they would all have cafeterias, and they would have dormitories. And then the Midtown area had lots of trailers, lots of hutments. They built everything they could think of to make room for people to stay in. And even in the hutments, five people could be in a hutment. But you could actually use it for ten people because when five were working, five more could sleep in there. This was a 24-hour town going all the time. And, I mean, there's even a, a silo out on the east end of town, out at Hall Ridge. If you go out there, it's still standing today. And what it was built for during the Manhattan Project was a beef cattle farm. They raised beef there to help provide food. They had chicken farms around. They had pig farms. I mean, think about it, 75,000 people, and they were all needed to be fed. They needed to be entertained. They needed to go to school. So in 18 months... Uh, to two years, all of this came into being. Yeah, it was muddy. What did you say the population was now? 75,000. Oh, now it's, yeah, now it's, oh, 30, it's 30,000. Okay, so it was more than twice sure. the size back then. Yeah. So where when they started building Oak Ridge, where did they get that workforce? Anywhere they could get them. They would advertise in high schools, in colleges, in newspapers. They would bring in people in from all over the nation. To work here and again they were paying them good wages so 75 cents an hour <laughs> wow. what was the hiring process like because of course they're wanting to keep the secret so are they just going out and being like hey we want to hire you this is for the war effort uh, in fact be quiet sure some would say bill wilcox who was a historian here before me and was a chemist who came here during the manhattan project uh, he went to a job fair after he had finished his college, he went to a job fair and he would only go to the ones that advertised this is war work. That's all he wanted to do. He didn't want anything else. And when he took the job, they told him, go to Knoxville and ask how to get there. 
and he came to Oak Ridge and by way of Knoxville and asking, where's Oak Ridge? Get on this bus and go to Oak Ridge. Did they just tell them, you have to keep this quiet? Or they just didn't tell them anything. Okay. Yeah. And but, they, they were told if they spoke, if they speculated about what was going on, uh, they usually were gone the next on, day. Oh, no, that was yeah. common knowledge. Yeah. They just didn't tell them. They just told yeah. them it's war work, and we'll tell you. I mean, General Groves believed in in compartmentalization. He felt like the people only needed to know what they needed to know to do their job. Even when they were shipping the uranium 235 from Oak Ridge to Los Alamos, they put it in small gold lined coffee cup sized containers, put two of them in a briefcase, strapped it to an Army lieutenant's arm, sent him on a passenger train up to Chicago. In Chicago, he transferred that to another Army lieutenant who went to Los Alamos so that the lieutenant going to Los Alamos didn't know where it came from, except he picked it up in Chicago. The one from Oak Ridge didn't know where it went, except he took it to Chicago. Now, that was the thinking. You don't tell anybody anything they don't need to know to do what they have to do. Now, Los Alamos was different. The scientists had to talk to one another, and Oppenheimer told Groves, I can't do that. We've got to let them talk. And he said, well, just keep them up there. Don't let them out. Well, they did get out some, but generally speaking, he didn't want it talked about. General Groves is an interesting guy. I mean, so driven. I wouldn't want to cross him in any way. Uh, it was once said his emotional graph was a straight line. You know, he was very steady. He had overseen the construction of the Pentagon before this, so he, he could take on massive projects successfully. Uh, Colonel Nichols, who was second in command to uh, General Groves, wrote a book race to Trinity. And in that book, he commented on General Groves. He said, he's the meanest SOB I've ever worked for. He's most uh, driven, uh, quickly makes decisions, has no regard for organizational structures, uh, but says, if I had to do the atomic bomb project over again, had the privilege of picking my boss, I'd pick General Groves. So Groves had a lot to do with making it happen. At what point did the did the workers? Sure, when the bomb was dropped on August the sixth, um, one of the Kayatron girls who's still alive and I still use her to talk to groups today, Ruth Huddleston. She was there, and uh, she says, when the bomb was dropped, her supervisor told the whole group, you know, we made the uranium for that bomb it was dropped on Hiroshima. It was it was in the newspaper that day too. So she said, well, I was glad because that meant we were going to end the war, and uh, uh, likely. And her boyfriend was in Germany and had already told her that he was going to be sent to Japan to invade Japan. Now, they, you know, there would have been lots of loss of life if that had happened. So, but she said when she got home that night, she heard on the radio and saw in the paper how many people that she had helped kill. And she became so depressed she couldn't sleep for a week. Interestingly enough, she didn't work much longer. She went and became a counselor in the school systems in Morgan County and went for the rest of her career never telling anybody that she'd worked at Oak Ridge until her granddaughter had a science project about Oak Ridge. She had to write, had to write about it. It wasn't science. It was a written project. And when she did, she was doing her homework over at uh, Ruth's house. And Ruth said, what are you working on? She said, oh, i got to do a project on Oak Ridge. 
Ruth said, well, I can help you with that. I used to work out there. <laughs> and that's the first time her family wow. knew that she had worked in Oak Ridge. When the bomb was finally dropped on Hiroshima in 1945, and the world learned what the gated city of Oak Ridge had been up to, the headline in the local paper read simply, Oak Ridge attacks Japan. Just as Hendricks had predicted, Black Creek Valley and Oak Ridge had helped win the greatest war it has ever been. Big engines dug big ditches, and thousands of people ran to and fro, building things with great noise and confusion. The earth shook, and today a city still sits on Black Oak Ridge. The facility you're sitting in today, the, we moved in here in 2018. The focus of AMSI is still Manhattan Project to begin, but it's now focused more on the science that happened since and now at Oak Ridge National Lab, at Y-12. And to tell the Manhattan Project story, in addition to what we do here, we have the K-25 History Center. So when you go there, the whole beginning of that is how was Oak Ridge created? How did the Manhattan Project get going? Where was it located? That whole story is told there. Then you go into the specifics of how K-25 worked, the science, the people behind it. Then also in Oak Ridge, we have great great partners, great other institutions, the uh, Children's Museum, Oak Ridge History Museum. They also tell, in their ways, the, the story of the Manhattan Project. And in November of 2015, we established the Manhattan Project National Historical Park. It has three locations, Oak Ridge, Los Alamos, New Mexico, and Hanford, Washington. The uh, park's presence is primarily to focus on that Manhattan Project story. That's part of the exciting part of this job, many exciting parts, but to be able to tell those stories about what's happened since. So the Manhattan Project, an amazing story, we tell that, but what's happened since and what's happening now, and then to use that as a foundation to teach broader lessons of STEM. So I say we're a big STEM or STEAM engine here, so we can, we can talk about neutron science and nuclear energy, but then we can tackle other science topics using that as a kind of springboard to go even further. So we do a ton of stuff with uh, classes here, but now with our online abilities, we're reaching folks around the world with our STEM education. So a great history to build upon and do really even better things in the future. I'd like to thank Alan and Ray for joining us and for being so welcoming on my visit to the American Museum of Science and Energy. Alan has his own podcast called American POTUS, focused on the office of the American presidency, and I'd encourage you to check that out as well. In our next episode, we'll be speaking with a member of the Cherokee tribe in the small town of Cherokee, North Carolina.